Hey everyone, this is Tim Harris. I'm the pastor of Woodburn Baptist Church and this is our weekly podcast. Hope it encourages you. Hope it makes you want to be closer to Jesus and more like him. Hope you enjoy this sermon. And if you want to know more about us, find us online at woodburnbaptist.org. your Bibles to Genesis chapter 32. Genesis chapter 32. I want to start a new sermon series, a conversation really, entitled, I Have My Doubts. I don't know exactly who this series is for, maybe just myself, uh, but if so, so be it. Uh, My life of faith uh, began, of course, as a kid in church. I grew up with a Christian family, uh, always been in church, uh, always been taught the Bible and and, and all of that. However, um, faith for me never came easily. My teachers were great, my parents were great, but I'm a person that just always has questions left over and more questions, and if you answer one question, I can come up with another question. Uh, I'm just that kind of person. Uh, I love to read, I love science, Um, I I, I just love so many things. Uh, And so for me, uh, faith has often been uh, a little bit messy, Uh, and no matter how... uh, confident I am and sometimes seem with what I know from Scripture, uh, I always have extra questions left over. Um, and growing up in the church with, with this kind of temperament, uh, I sometimes felt really out of place. Um, people in church always seem to have it all together, and their faith always seems to be so uh, tight and uh, wrapped up with a bow, you know, and, and my faith has never felt that way. And so... Whether I'm only speaking to myself or maybe there are others like me, I just want us to take a couple of Sundays and really talk about what it means to follow Jesus and to believe, even if we have doubts and questions and disappointment left over. Uh, So I'm going to start with this quotation from Mark Twain, not really any kind of spiritual giant. Uh, However, this quotation, I think, will help us figure something out about the life of faith. This is what he says. I knew a man who grabbed a cat by the tail and learned 40% more about cats than the man who didn't. Okay, first off, any cat people in the room? Um, Forgive me. Uh, Yeah, I'm not advocating cruelty to animals. Please don't email me uh, about this. Please don't send me pictures of your cats this week. Um, This is an analogy. It's a metaphor. We're not actually grabbing cats by the tail here, all right? But if we did... I want you to understand and think for a moment about what that would be like. I knew a man who grabbed a cat by the tail. You wouldn't do it, but if you did, what do you imagine grabbing a cat by the tail would be like? It would be one of the most exciting moments in your life. I guarantee you. That is going to be an exciting moment. If you were a little bit sleepy before you grabbed the cat by the tail, when you grab the cat by the tail, you will instantly be completely awake. You'll be fully awake and the cat will also be fully alive, fully awake. I knew a man who grabbed a cat by the tail, and he learned 40% more about cats than the man who didn't. So the key word here is learned. It's a learning process, and we're comparing two different experiences. The one is the guy who grabs a cat by the tail. He learns more than the man who just stands back and observes feline behavior. He can make some observations and probably learn some things about cats, but he will not learn as much as the man who has what I would call the fully immersive experience. What's a fully immersive experience? What's an immersive experience? 
all in. Yeah, it, it, you are all in. And the man who grabs the cat by the tail, that dude is all in. He's going to learn a lot more than the one who is not all in. I, I want to talk about what it means to have a fully immersive faith. Now, a fully immersive kind of faith, and I, I'm talking about in your life of faith. The life of faith is like grabbing a cat by the tail. I want you to know that. It is a life of accepting challenges. It is a life of wrestling with big thoughts and sometimes questions that seem impossible. It is a life of sometimes wrestling with disappointment. And it is a life of continuing to learn more and more and more about a God who is infinitely bigger than anything you can imagine. He's a great big God. And I promise he's bigger than all of your questions. But uh, uh you're going to have to take the tiger by the tail. You ready? Uh, let's look at Genesis chapter 32. I want you to understand that this is one of the foundational stories in all of Scripture. It's a short story. It's a mysterious story. It's weird. It's told in just a few verses. It's very spare in its description. And yet, as I say, it's one of the most important stories in all of Scripture. Jacob is a patriarch. Jacob is very important in salvation history. Uh, and this is the night when he wrestles with God. Genesis chapter 32, I'm going to start in verse 24. And again, it's going to move fast, so y'all hang on. We're about to take a, take a cat by the tail here. Genesis chapter 32, verse 24. Jacob was all alone in the camp, and a man came and wrestled with him until the dawn began to break. When the man saw that he would not win the match, he touched Jacob's hip and wrenched it out of its socket. Then the man said, let me go for the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What is your name? The man asked. He replied, Jacob. Your name will no longer be Jacob, the man told him. From now on, you will be called Israel because you have fought with God and with men and have won. Please tell me your name, Jacob said. Why do you want to know my name, the man replied. Then he blessed Jacob there. Jacob named the place Peniel, which means face of God, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been spared. The sun was rising as Jacob left Peniel, and he was limping because of the injury to his hip. That's a lot. That's a lot. Let's talk about it. There was this kid, his name was Ray. Um, he's a little, little squirt, just a little bitty dude. Went to high school, his freshman year, wanted to find something you know, to do, and he ended up trying out for the wrestling team. Um, but he got on the team. He, he actually made the team easily because Ray was the only kid in the whole school who would be able to wrestle in the 95 pounds and below weight division. 95 pounds, this kid weighed less than 95 pounds. Um, so he is able to wrestle in that division, so he's on the team. The conference of schools included a school that was exclusively for students who were hearing and vision impaired. They were, they were blind and deaf kids. And so one of the first uh, meets, Ray is, is up first. He's going to wrestle because he's in the lowest weight division. And he is paired with a kid from this school. It's a blind kid. So Ray is about to wrestle a a kid who's blind. The referee comes over and gives instructions. He says, now when the bell sounds, I want you to start by tying up. Now in wrestling, tying up is when the two opponents, they 
They face each other, and you put your left hand around the neck of the other person, just on the base of the neck, and you tie up real close. So that means you're literally face-to-face, literally sometimes, you know, ear-to-ear. You stand in that position until the beginning, and then you wrestle from that tied-up position. The referee said, when the, re- when the bell sounds, I want you to tie up and then wrestle. Ray wasn't listening to any of that. He was just too nervous, too excited. The bell sounded. Ray ran around behind the blind kid, came up from behind him, tackled him and took him down, flattened him. The referee blew the whistle, picked him back up and said, you didn't listen to me. You have to remember who you're wrestling. The boy is blind. He can't see you. If he isn't able to touch you and know your position, you have an unfair advantage. When the bell sounds, I want you to tie up. All right? So they start over, the bell sounds, the boys tie up, and the blind kid takes them down, takes them all the way down. You gotta remember who you're wrestling. God knows full well who he's wrestling with Jacob. Knows full well. That's why God ties up with Jacob. Now understand, that word Israel in the scripture, your name shall be Israel. Israel literally means something like he ties up with God. So God knows full well that we are all spiritually blind and spiritually deaf. We don't see him, we don't hear him, and yet God wants us to know him. God ties up with us, that's the point. I don't know if you want that though, to be honest, and I wish we could be honest, I don't know that you want that. A God who's gonna tie up with you, a God that you're going to have to deal with face to face. I I don't know. I I don't know your heart, but my hunch is for a number of you, you don't really want that. Your idea of a life of faith has more to do with, you know, being baptized when you're a child, you know, in other words, you just want that assurance that when you die, you'll go to heaven. You know, you just want to know that you're not going to hell. You just want heaven after you die And, and past that. You mostly just want God to stay in the background of your life. You know what I'm saying? In other words, you just kind of want God like 911. If you end up in a crisis, if you're in a car accident, or your mother becomes ill, or you can't pay your bills, you want to be able to you know, cry out to God and have him rescue you. You want God available in case of emergency, or you just want God kind of in an advisory capacity in case you need anything. But you really don't want to have to tie. You don't want to take the cat by the tail every day of your life. You just want to sort of live at this safe distance from God. You need to understand that that's not how this is going to work. That's not how the life of faith works. Understand, everything that God does in your life has one single purpose, and that is to increase your faith. Everything God is doing, everything God does in your life has one purpose, and that is to increase your faith. Now, I know some of you, your faith is not that important to you. That's not your top priority. That's not going to change God. He still wants to increase your faith. Now, what you wish is that God would, you know, just try to increase your happiness. If only God would make your happiness his top priority, that sounds like a good deal to you. If God would just make you happy, if God would just make sure that you make good grades, that you graduate, that you get a good job, that you make a good income, if God would just make sure that everybody stays healthy, you know, happiness. We want happiness. God is much more concerned in your faith. 
We like comfort. I wish that God's priority were more in line with my priorities, which would mean I would like year-round summer, no bad weather ever. I want pizza for supper every night. You know, I mean, I could go on and on. I, I want a life of comfort. I don't ever want to be sick. I never want to be inconvenienced. I just want everything to kind of go my way. I want to drive down Scottsville Road and all the lights just always be green. You know? I want comfort. And sometimes when I don't get comfort, I get so mad at God. But understand, please, don't be in any way surprised by this. Your comfort is not God's top priority. It's your faith. Now, why is God, who knows everything... All wise, all powerful, and he knows you. Why is it that he makes your faith his top priority? Well, it's simple. Without faith, you can't know him. Without faith, it is impossible to know God, impossible to please God. You have to have faith. And with faith, once you begin to know God, then understand, then you're dwelling right there. You, you are now connected to the source of all happiness. And the source of everything else, everything good that you could possibly imagine wanting in life, the source of that is God. And what he actually would give you is far beyond anything you could ask for or imagine. You can't even begin to think, uh, to ask for the things God would give you if only you knew, if only you knew him, if only you were close enough to him to be there when the blessings start to roll. You know what I'm saying? So God values your faith more than anything else because once you're connected with him in faith, then you become connected to everything else. God is the source of everything good. Faith is what connects you to the source. Everything God does in your life is meant to increase your faith. So this is where your priority and God's priority kind of come into conflict because you were thinking that you would just have a God who would take you to heaven when you die and then other than that be available in case of emergency. But no, 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 no. He has no intention of staying far away like that. God has a way of coming close. As a matter of fact, I would say this. God is never off in heaven somewhere hard to know or hard to find. As much as sometimes you wish that he were, he's not. God is not you know, some faraway God who wound up the universe like a clockmaker and then disappeared and just watches it unwind. God is personal and God is near and God is involved in all of this. God is never off in heaven somewhere hard to know or find. God is marvelously and sometimes terribly with you. So Pastor Tim, what do you mean terribly with me? Oh my goodness, have you not read this story? I mean, it's wonderful to think about God being near us, but then sometimes it's, uh, it's like taking a tiger by the tail. You know what I mean? Have you read this story? See, Jacob wanted that first deal. Jacob wanted a God who would bless him, but then leave him alone so Jacob could do his thing. Jacob, the name itself means, you might know, the name Jacob means deceiver, liar. And that's what he's been and that's all he's done. He lied to his daddy, he lied to his mama, he lied to his father-in-law, he's just a liar, a deceiver. He cheated his brother out of the estate, out of the birthright. I mean, Jacob lies and cheats and squirms his way through his entire life and at the same time, he somehow expects God to bless that. 
And for a long time, it seems like that's how it works. Read his story and sometimes it'll get under your skin. It's like, why is God continuing to bless this punk? He's awful. He's terrible. And every time you turn around, God's just blessing him again. And I'm telling you, it gets under my skin. It seems like God's just going to stay far away, let Jacob do Jacob's thing, and God's going to keep raining down blessings until the night Jacob is uh, asleep by the bank of the river and uh, God comes near. <laughs> it's, 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 it's a fight, according to the scripture. Now, Jacob is making this trip back home after all these years. And remember, when last he was home, he uh, got in this huge fight with his brother. And his brother said, I will kill you. If I ever see you again, I will kill you. And, and honestly, we'd all want to kill him. Jacob was a very killable guy, understand. So Jacob's lived his whole life now knowing that his brother was out there to kill him. And now he's going home. He's going home. So he is camping beside the river on the night before he goes back home. And so he knows he's going to face his brother. And Esau has spent his whole life, you know, planning this revenge. That's what we're thinking, that you know, Esau's been waiting his whole life to kill his brother. So I would imagine in that first moment when this stranger jumps out of the darkness and it's it's like that you're just reading through the story and all of a sudden there's a man out and all of a sudden they're fighting it's like what what i mean it, it happens that quickly for us i can't imagine what it was like for jacob just to be attacked out of the darkness he must have thought at first that this must be esau it must be my brother i mean esau's been waiting his whole life and his last words were i will kill you next time i see you and so it must be Esau. I suppose that for some moment, some amount of time, he must be thinking he's fighting Esau. Who in the world is this stranger in the night? It's a fight that lasts all night long. Have you, anybody ever been in a fight? Like an actual fight? Like I really haven't much, really. My sister, I, my sister often tried to kill me, um, and it was rough. I'm talking about taking a tiger by the tail. I mean, my sister... Is, is a girl, and I'm not going to be sexist here, but in my observation uh, of taking a tiger by the tail, um, men, when they fight, we, we value form. Like, I may not be much of a fighter, but I at least want to look cool, you know, somehow. But my sister, she's not, she not trying to look cool. She's trying to murder you, you know. And so she comes at you like, remember the Tasmanian devil, just like this, just like, you know, walking into a tornado. And she is just this spinning, you know, storm of fingernails and teeth and, and feet. She's just, you know, she's just like her feet will be in the air, like, boom, 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 kicking you in the face. And, and you wake up in the dryer. I mean, I mean, true story. It's, my sister was tough. Um, but beyond that, I haven't been in a lot of fights. I, I, I got punched one time in the face. Mm, man, it really hurts. Um, I never want that to happen again. I have accidentally before, like, bumped myself in the nose. You ever done that? And it hurts so bad. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, your eyes water. I have bumped myself in the nose, and my eyes would water, and I think I'm going to meet Jesus. I mean, it, it feels so intense. It's awful. And, and so a fight... It's where two people just continue to punch and kick and bite. And this happens all night long. This fight is to the death, you know. Except it's not. It's the weirdest thing. Verse 25, when the man, we know that Jacob is actually wrestling the Lord, which is so bizarre. But 
at this early point, he's just called the man. When the man saw that he would not win the match, okay, I can't wrap my head around that, but when the man saw that he would not win the match, he touched Jacob's hip and rinsed it out of its socket. Okay, that verse doesn't make any sense to me. Because if this opponent has this kind of power, like all he's got to do is touch Jacob's hip and his leg just falls out of socket. Like if you have that kind of power, from my calculation, this fight could have been over at any moment. I mean, this stranger, this enemy wrestling Jacob could have flattened him and there wouldn't have been a fight at all. If you got that kind of power, but obviously he's been holding back. Touches Jacob's hip. The fight is officially over, but something really weird is happening here because now the man says, let me go, I'm out of here. And Jacob says, no, I will not let you go until you bless me. Okay, I don't know everything about how fights work, but I won't let you go till you bless me. Something tells me this is not a fight anymore. It's something else. I don't know when it changes, but somewhere in the middle of that long night of fighting and scratching and punching, Jacob begins to understand that this enemy who wrestles him in the darkness is in a very literal sense a blessing in disguise. That this stranger who he thought was going to come out of the darkness to kill him actually is the only figure with the power to bless and change his life. So the uh, Lord says, what's your name? <laughs> uh, I wish I had time to preach that because I love it so much. In that moment of vulnerability and desperation, that's the last question Jacob wanted to have to answer. You know, well, what's your name? Because his name is what? Liar, deceiver. Yeah, it's just, it's everything that Jacob's been his whole life. What's your name? This is Jacob. The Lord says, that is not who you are anymore. Good. That is not who you are anymore. From now on, your name shall be Israel, which means he wrestles with God. That's what that name means. He wrestles with God. So at the end of this story, the, the, the blessing, in, in a sense, is this new name, but also the way in which the Lord God himself honors that man who would wrestle him all night long. The way God names his people, the people Israel, these are God's chosen people, but they are the ones who wrestle with God. I find it amazing and beautiful, but you have to understand, this means that wrestling with God is a sign of belonging to God. It's a sign of faith. Now, nobody ever told me this, and so in my life of often wrestling with faith and wrestling with God, I felt like something was wrong with me, because I felt like if, if my faith was genuine, then I should be as sure as everybody else seems to be so sure, and I should have answers where everybody else doesn't even seem to have a lot of questions. I mean, I struggled because nobody ever told me that this is what faith looks like. It, it looks more like taking a tiger by the tail. You know, we want faith to be like when our senior adults, the wise and wonderful group, like every October, they charter a bus and drive around Kentucky and look at fall leaves. Like we want the life of faith to be like one of those bus trips with all the senior adults where we ride around, look at fall leaves and eat ice cream. But that's not what the life of faith is. It's not. It's not that at all. 
It's like taking a tiger by the tail. It's like one of those roller coasters where if you think you might be pregnant or with a heart condition, you might ought to step off. It's like one of those roller coasters where if you're not hanging on, you could lose your false teeth or your iPhone. It is a life of challenge. It is a life of, 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 of sometimes confusion. It is sometimes uncertainty mixed in with the certainty. It's answers, but lots and lots of questions that sometimes multiply and enlarge even as you grow. I mean, the life of faith is not something simple. It's not something pretty. It can be messy, and it is going to be the fight of your life, the, the, the life of faith. There's this moment in Jacob's wrestling match with God, uh, and, and there's a pattern like this in Scripture. It's that moment when the, the sun's starting to come up, and the Lord just decides to end this, so he throws his hip out of socket, and then seems like he's going to leave. And Jacob just clings to him and says, no, no, you're not leaving here till you bless me. I won't let you go. I love that moment so much. But understand there's a pattern like that in Scripture. In the Easter story, there's that moment where Jesus uh, begins to walk along the road to Emmaus with two disciples. Remember that story? And, and their eyes aren't able to see that it's Jesus as they walk for the longest time. And then they get to the house, and the scripture says that Jesus acted like he was going to walk on, like walk off and leave them. But they begged him to stay, and he came into the house. There's just this pattern in scripture of where the Lord seems to act like he's going to leave us or, or withdraw from us. It's like in this wrestling moment when the Lord says, let me go, I'm out of here. And Jacob says, no. I, I think the important thing is this. That sometimes God will pull away to teach you to reach for him and cling to him. If the Lord had not seemed as if he was going to leave, Jacob would have never learned how to cling and say, I won't let you go. You know what I'm saying? And nobody tells us this. In those moments of your life when, when you've always had faith or you thought you had faith, and then one day it just goes cold. When we talk about reading the Bible, I tell you to read your Bible all the time. I fuss at y'all. I say, you can't just let me read the Bible to you. You need to read the Bible. And then you go home and read the Bible. And if you really start reading seriously, it starts raising more questions than it answered. And I never told you how to read the Bible when it's raising more questions for you than it's answering. And everybody else in your mind seems to read the Bible and get everything they need for living. And all it does is confuse you and, and overwhelm you and and nobody tells you how to read the Bible when the Bible just begins to seem strange. Nobody tells you how to pray when you've been praying and you prayed and you prayed. And honestly, it doesn't seem like it does any good. You're not even sure anybody's listening. And sometimes that can happen to you and you've prayed your whole life and you've always had faith. You've never doubted and all of a sudden doubts and nobody ever tells you how to get through that. We talk a lot about what to believe, but we never manage to communicate how to believe. And they're both equally important. It's important to know what you believe, but it's also vitally important that you know how to believe. How do you believe when you got questions? How do you believe when you're having doubts? How do you believe in the face of disappointment? I've been your pastor 26 years. 
There were two, I would say, hardest times in my ministry and hardest times in our, in our life as a church family, to be honest, and they both involved the, the death of a young person. The first one was Abby Cummins. Abby was the sweetest little girl, and she got cancer. Just a little girl with cancer. And she was sick so long. She was sick so long, and we prayed for her as a church. But I want you to understand what you may not have understood at the time. Abby was a little girl. And there were other children in our church, and they all loved Abby. She was their friend. And every Sunday in Sunday school, those children prayed for Abby because we taught the children that God could do all things, that God could heal her, that there could be a miracle. And those children believed that God would heal Abby. It never, it never entered their minds that Abby could die. They were children. They prayed. Never crossed their minds. And Abby died. And I've continued to be the pastor of that generation of young people. And they're all young adults now. If you've been around long enough and you remember those kids, try to count on your fingers how many of them are still following the Lord. We lost most of those kids. And through the years of talking to them, I know why. It goes back to Abby. It never crossed their minds that God wouldn't heal her. Never entered their minds that she would die. And when they prayed Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, and we had taught them that God could do all things, and that God loved Abby, and that God would care for her, and that we had her funeral right here in this church, and then the next Sunday, they go back to Sunday school and they just talk about Noah and the ark and everything just goes right back. And we never taught them how to believe in a God who can work miracles when God doesn't do your miracle. We taught them to believe that Jesus is a resurrection and the life, but we didn't teach them how to believe that at the funeral of your friend. And I'm not sure that we've learned that lesson yet. We tell people what to believe, but we don't help them know how to believe. Because I'm telling you, the world is not kind to faith. Your own experience sometimes is not kind to faith. There will be disappointment. There's going to be questions sometimes that loom so large, and you will have doubts. And nobody prepares you for that, and nobody in any way helps you understand how it is that you hang on to faith when everything you felt like you've ever believed begins to fall out from under your feet. It's not enough to talk about what to believe. We have to help people understand how to believe. And honestly, sometimes struggling with God is the only faithful way to be in relation to him. You have to struggle. That wrestling is not in any way abnormal. That's what it looks like. That's what faith is. If you learn anything at all from this story, understand we're going to wrestle with God because God is an infinite God, much bigger than we ever imagined. His thoughts are not your thoughts. His ways are not your ways. Don't you ever think for a moment that you've got this God figured out. Not only that, notice in this story where Jacob wrestles with God, this isn't his first moment with God. This is like the end of his story. 
It's near the end of his story of faith. This isn't how he starts. This isn't when Jacob got saved. This is somewhere way down the road. And what most people don't seem to understand is that your deeper experiences and understanding of God come later in your faith story, not earlier. I say this because some of you in this house, if you talked about the high point of your faith story, it's like in 1998, you know, when you're with the youth group and everybody's at camp crossings and, oh, Pastor Tim, those were such good days. I miss youth group. Grow up, dude. You're not a youth anymore. You're not a youth anymore. And you can't continue to think that somehow that was the high watermark of your Christian life. That was just the beginning. With God, everything just continues to get better. You're supposed to grow. As the oldest man in the room, I guess I can tell you how it was in the old days. In the old days in Sunday school, we didn't have iPads or flat screen TVs, but we did have technology. My Sunday school teacher had a flannel board. Okay, kids, let me tell you what a flannel board is. A flannel board is a board with flannel. Flannel is that fabric that you, your pajamas are made of, that soft, kind of fuzzy stuff. So if you have a flannel board, here's the magic. You could cut out pictures and like put flannel on the back of the pictures and then wait for it. You put the picture on the board and it stays. Whoa. Yeah, absolutely. It's like Velcro for poor people. That's what our church did. We had a flannel board. And I'm telling you, if my Sunday school teacher came out with a flannel board, I knew it was going to be a good day. We were about to be amazed. So it's Noah's Ark. And so she would cut out the picture of the ark, put the flannel on the back. And then in the moment when the flood comes, she put that ship on the flannel board and take her hands away. We're like, whoa. Animals, two by two. She'd be putting them on that flannel board. They'd be hanging there. We're like, whoa. How does she do it? Then the rainbow, big rainbow. She put that rainbow at the top of the whole thing on that flannel board. Whoa, man. Problem is, I stepped out into a world that was a whole lot bigger than that flannel board. You know, like first science class when we talked about their water cycle. I had questions about the flood. I had questions that never made the flannel board. And nobody ever asked. I'm just saying, my teacher had a flannel board and simple pictures because we were children. We were children. The problem with a lot of us is we are adults now, but our concept of God, our faith has never grown past the flannel board stage. You're sort of stepping out into the world with this childish, this flannel board picture of God because you've never allowed God to grow your faith. You, you, you never have. If faith got difficult, you quit. If you get a question that somehow, you know, you've never understood, you give up. You know, you just quit reading the Bible. I'm just saying you always don't seem to understand that, that faith is supposed to take you deeper and deeper. You're supposed to be taking a cat by the tail here, people. It's... Not supposed to be just something that you master in Sunday school as a child, and then for the rest of your life, you just have faith. No. As a matter of fact, growing into a new stage of faith begins 
actually begins with asking some new question. Again, nobody tells us this. But in that moment when all of a sudden a question emerges and maybe you've never thought about it or maybe it never hits you the way it hits you now and all of a sudden this is a question that you don't know the answer to. It's a question about God or a question about the Bible or a question about your life or what God is doing in your life or why God is not doing something in your life. All of a sudden the question comes and nobody seems to tell us what to do when the question seems bigger than God. Nobody talks about that and nobody tells us about that, but I'm telling you, this is normal. Not just is this normal, this is how faith works. This is how you grow. Every opportunity, understand, for you just to walk and give up, that's also an opportunity to discover a God bigger than you have ever imagined. A God that is bigger than your doubts, infinitely larger than all of your questions, and a God who will see you through. But you're going to have to take the tiger by the tail. You're going to have to wrestle. Because if you just expect all this to be easy, faith, you know, tied up in a little box with a bow on top, you're never going to even know what faith is. It's It's a wrestling with questions. I've started a sermon series today called I Have My Doubts, and I will have my emails tomorrow. Um, somebody's going to say, Pastor, probably won't be from this church. That's the thing about the internet, y'all. Everybody from everywhere can see it. Most of the only people watching are complainers, you know. But somebody's going to watch it, and they're going to say, Pastor Tim, you should not stand in a Christian pulpit and preach doubt. I'm not preaching doubt. I'm preaching faith that is big enough to withstand your doubt. I'm preaching faith. And faith that's big enough to withstand your doubt means it's not gonna fold up every time somebody asks a big question. Let's ask questions. Let's talk about it. I mean, our kids are out there facing a culture that is so turned upside down. Our kids every day are dealing with questions about gender. And they don't have any idea how to maneuver. Most nobody knows how to in any way maneuver the waters of our culture. But if they can't ask those questions in church, if, if, if we're all going to flip out, if they bring their non-binary friend to youth group, like if that's going to cause you to have a stroke, the, the, the questions are what give us an opportunity to grow, to go deeper into the things of God. We cannot possibly begin to grow and encourage growth and faith if we don't make this a place for questions. I just say the church has to be a safe place to ask the questions because the questions are actually necessary for growing and deepening faith. We have to be a place where those questions can be asked, where these tough things can be talked about. I assume you're paying attention. You know that young people are leaving the Christian church, the Christian faith in droves And that has escalated since 2020. So about in the last three years, you all, we're losing a generation. I'm talking about your children and grandchildren if you're of a certain age. They're leaving the faith. You don't believe me, where are your grandchildren today? I mean, get serious. We're losing them. We're losing them because the church doesn't seem to have anything to say to the questions that are raised by the culture. They have real questions and they have real doubts. 
And the thing is, when people encounter, especially young people, when they encounter these questions, these doubts, and nobody's ever told them that that's part of faith, then instantly they assume that they have a choice. And the choice is to continue to be a part of a faith that has nothing to say to all of life's biggest questions or else leave the faith. So they leave the faith. Most of them leave the faith. And it's happening all around us. Are you not paying attention? But the other thing is, that isn't the way it goes for all the young people. There are young people who move through that season of doubts and questions, and they come out on the other side with a stronger, deeper faith. Now, what makes the difference? We should be concerned about this. We should want to pay attention. What makes the difference between people whose faith is shipwrecked by doubts or the ones who move through doubts and come to stronger faith? What makes the difference? Do you want to know what it is? Somebody who will talk to them. We got to be a safe place for people to bring their questions. For teenagers to walk in and say, what does the Bible say about gender? What does the Bible say about my homosexual friend? Is she going to hell? What does the Bible say about immigration? What does the Bible say about salvation? What does the Bible say? I mean, you know, these are questions, real questions, and they want to answer but we never manage to make church a place that seems like a safe place for real questions. But it has to be. Because understand, it is not doubt that makes people give up their faith, it's that silence. If nobody else in church ever seems to have a hard question, then if I have a question, that just makes me feel like the one who doesn't have faith. So I give up and I quit. If everybody else in the church seems to sail right through life and they never seem to have any sort of struggle, they don't ever have to wrestle with the Lord or wrestle with their faith. They just come in on Sunday singing and slapping the backs and shaking their hands and, and I walk in here and I'm barely holding it together. I'm just saying it's, it's that silence where people with doubts and people with questions don't feel like the church is a place where they can ask questions and express doubt. And for that reason, people in church don't grow in faith. No wonder young people give it up. This is not the end of a conversation. This is the beginning of something I want us to keep talking about for several weeks. I really think it matters. I think it matters because I was that young person walking across Western's campus one day saying, God, I don't even know if I believe in you. I don't even know if I believe, which is a really weird thing to tell him. You know, I don't know if I believe in you. Like, who are you talking to? Um, but that's what I mean. You know, the faith and the doubt all mixed up and I couldn't find anybody else who felt like they would talk about that with me. I want us to talk about it, what it means when faith is messy, what it means when you believe with your whole heart, but you also have doubt. You might be the person right now saying, Pastor Tim, I feel like I could make a commitment to Christ, but I got a lot of questions. You have to understand, you can come with questions. You can follow Jesus and you can still have questions. He said, Pastor Tim, I don't, I don't know about faith. I'm, I'm a, I have a lot of doubt. I'm telling you, you can follow Jesus and still have doubt. I just think it's an important conversation to have because this, 
this is how my faith is. It's messy. It, it's with questions and doubt left over. And I, I cannot believe that I'm the only one. Pray with me.